Hello everyone and welcome to episode 160 of Squared Circle Gazette Radio. I am Liam O'Rourke and it feels very good to be back behind the microphone, sat around the oaken table, albeit by myself, uh, for the beginning of a mini-series this week covering the year 1991 in the World Wrestling Federation. Although I'm by myself around the table, uh, I will be joined by my good friend Kyle Ross from Ohio uh, for the duration of this series. Uh, Me and Kyle did a series on the year 1990 previously that got a lot of good feedback. You can go and check that out in the archives at squaredcirclegazette.com. It was a lot of fun uh, to look back at the year 1990. Very interesting year uh, that obviously segues naturally into what we're going to start today here. 1991, we're going to run the year uh, and get into all the details of the stuff that was going on. Very crazy year. Before we get running, uh, I just want to give everybody a quick update. I hope that everybody is safe out there. I hope that uh, people, you, the loyal listeners, you and your families are doing okay. I know it's been a shitty time for a lot of folks. Uh, and there's obviously here at SCG, there's been no shows for a few months either with the lockdown going on. Uh, we have a lot of plans and a lot of ideas for stuff we wanted to do. But without being able to gather in person, uh, it's been a tough situation. Uh, we did do a show back in May uh, talking about AEW uh, Double or Nothing. Uh, we did it by Skype, but unfortunately, because we usually record our podcasts in person, uh, doing it by Skype kind of disrupts the flow. It makes for kind of a different feel, and, and I think the guys kind of unanimously felt that the, the, the difference in feel to the show wasn't really what I wanted to put out there to you guys. Um, but obviously, we're still able to use Skype for this series today, and the 1991 series begins here. Uh, we'll be breaking it down to chunks and releasing them every week, so the shows will be easier to digest over the course of the next month or so. Uh, I should note we recorded this first one on Sunday morning, hours before Alex Trebek uh, passed away, a man who does get a mention. Uh, this is going to be a really fun look at a very turbulent year. So with that said, let's get it rolling and let's start our conversation with Kyle Ross talking 1991 in the WWF. Ladies and gentlemen, joining me now from the other side of the pond, back with us on SCG Radio, it is a great pleasure, a great privilege to welcome back from the Top Rope Nation podcast, all the way over in the great state of Ohio in the United States of America, Kyle Ross. And Kyle, it brings me much joy to not only have you back here on the podcast, but to have you after what has been a very turbulent and tumultuous week, to be able to say with a smile on my face, how you doing? Be careful with that great state of Ohio business. <laughs> an argument could be made the other way. Uh, you know, Liam, what a time to be alive. <laughs> be- Indeed. Attempted to record this podcast several days ago, uh, Wednesday morning, in, in fact, uh, a morning that will go down of great historical significance for some. And there were some technical issues on my side that prevented us from doing it. But there was also uh, a, a technical issue that had nothing to do with my computer called the United States of America. <laughs> and I was prepared, and you've known me for 14 years, you know I'm not a bullshitter. Okay, I was prepared to come on this show and just tell you, you know, why didn't you, meaning the English, finish us off in 1776 when you had the chance? (laughs) I was prepared to come on this podcast, listened to by thousands around the world. And we thank you, all of you who listened to the 1990 series. I was prepared to come on here and say things like Benedict Arnold greater than Paul Revere. But I don't have to say those things anymore, do I, Liam? No, you do not, sir. Because the mail-in ballots did the run-in. <laughs> Trump has done the job. Uh, and I want to make one thing very clear, Liam. I have no sympathy for Donald Trump. Trump screwed Trump. 
Oh, man, we could talk about this election, actually, for hours, because it's been a crazy, crazy week. And uh, me and you have been going back and forth pretty much the entire time, just trading nervous messages about what's going on in Arizona and uh, and just what's going on in general. And, you know, the, the, the message I woke up to on Wednesday morning, before I'd even turn on the TV, where it just said, it's not looking good. And I was just furious at that point when I saw that. And uh, for it to turn out the way it has... Yes, hey, you know, wrestling could learn a lot from that in 2020. <laughs> sure could. And, but, uh, you know, for, those, yeah. for all our English listeners out there, and of course there are many, uh, we will be talking about the crown later in this podcast in a much, uh, well, oh, less oh, important, uh, yes, in a much more <laughs> less important situation. <laughs> oh man. Uh, yeah, so as we, uh, we transition here to this series, Obviously, uh, for those of you who have listened to our 1990 series, you know that we kind of alluded to the fact we were coming to 1991, uh, the natural, obviously, uh, place to go following that. And much like the previous series, we're going to break this up into a number of different segments to approach uh, many different aspects of 1991, chronologically speaking, starting, of course, from the beginning of the year through to WrestleMania 7 today uh, and looking at all the big stories that took place. So before we do that, we're going to kind of backtrack a little bit uh, to kind of set the stage for what we're going to be talking about today here in 1991, because obviously in that initial series, I kind of had a bit of a thesis that I wasn't necessarily uh, kind of peddling or trying to kind of talk myself into. The idea of 1990s value, questionable to use that term, relative to the fact that the WWF obviously takes its downward slide here in, 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 uh, in 1991. And I kind of was wondering how much 1990 kind of plays into it. 1990 being a very kind of boring year from a television perspective. Um, and kind of leaving WWE, in, sorry, the WWF, in a, a very kind of desperate situation. And we see that as they move to Sergeant Slaughter, who obviously is going to be the big story here today. Um, but Kyle, I know they kind of want to uh, set this up too in terms of 1991, in terms of the, the impact on the company this year is as significant as, as, as maybe any of this decade. Yeah, so if 1990 was an odd entry point to look at the World Wrestling Federation, 1991 is nothing short of batshit crazy. Oh, yeah. I don't think it would be an understatement to say it is perhaps the craziest year in the history of the promotion. And almost all of it has nothing to do with in-ring. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, your thesis for 1990 was, is it a necessary sacrifice going with Warriors Champ for the beginning of the undoing? Well, to me... And, you know, I've peeked ahead, obviously, and I also lived through it, so I already knew. Uh, 1991, to me, renders your thesis moot because a stunning number of issues cause what is an inevitable decline that would basically last until Steve Austin. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there, are, there are several heavy, uh, heavy issues that obviously are going to take a lot to overcome. Um, obviously, as we kind of left off at the end of 1990, Warrior, who had had a rough title run, especially the feud with Rick Rude, which we talked about previously, of course, struggling uh, throughout the summer, kind of seems to take a bit of a better turn as we approach the end of the year and Randy Savage kind of comes into play. Um, Sergeant Slaughter obviously has been brought in. They brought in General Adnan at this point, so they are going in that direction. Hulk Hogan, but his drawing power is struggling as well. We kind of examined that previously. The, the feud with uh, him and Tugboat against Earthquake and Dino Bravo was set in the low records uh, on the house shows. And Vince had gone on the road with Hogan to talk about what's needed to kind of get that Hogan drawing power magic back. And they were kind of at this crossroads as they entered the start of the year. A lot of stories to get to here. But 
before we get into the rise and fall of Sergeant Slaughter, we're going to take a little bit of a detour uh, before we do with a sensational story on the 31st of December 1990. Kyle, I'm going to throw it to you here. Yes, so this is two of my favorite things, Bobby the Brain Heenan and weed. Uh, (laughs) Per Dave Meltzer, Bobby Heenan was arrested Tuesday, one day after he collapsed on an airplane coming home for New Year's. Heenan, 47, was coming home to Tampa from Detroit on Northwest Airlines on December 31st when he passed out just as the plane was landing. Airport police found him unconscious and rushed him to St. Joseph's Hospital. With his heartbeat down, uh, near 35 beats per minute, the doctors asked police to check Heated's baggage, and they found 48 grams of marijuana and two pipes <laughs> containing marijuana resin. After Heenan regained consciousness and was released from the hospital, he was arrested when he went to claim his baggage. According to the story in the Tampa Tribune, Heenan didn't appear surprised and was very cooperative with police when arrested on January 1st and charged with possession of 48 grams of marijuana and narcotic paraphernalia. This is so great. This is so 1991. <laughs> Keenan went back on tour without missing any scheduled appearances for a Thursday night show in Tucson, Arizona. There you go. Uh, because the storyline in Heenan's current house show program with the big boss man is that if he fails to appear, he will be, quote, suspended for life by the WWF. <laughs> Heenan wasn't pulled from any shows immediately. Uh, and to the best of Dave's knowledge, with the exception of the Tampa newspaper, the incident didn't make any press until the, over the weekend went on Sunday. It went all over the wires and was picked up around the country. So uh, a very auspicious start here. Uh, this is much more lighthearted compared to some of the legal issues we will be getting into uh, momentarily, or some of the, I just should say, controversial issues uh, we'll be getting into momentarily. But, um, you know, thinking about this, Liam, as I just imagine how this went down, and I'm glad, obviously, uh, Bobby was okay. Good to hear. You know, the heart rate dropping, that's never good, but uh, he's okay. I think the only way that this story could be funnier is if when the cops found the weed, they just broke out into a spontaneous weasel chant. <laughs> you know, what? I, I, I mean, I kind of want to forget 1990 as well, so I can't blame Bobby Heenan for this decision. <laughs> yes, yes, that's a good point. Yeah, do you want to be just like, oh, fuck it, you know? Yeah, and he's ta- he's taken that cannonball to the stomach every night from the boss man, too. So, you know. <laughs> hey, you need some weed to get over that, man. It probably that's hurt. It. You're right. He's probably got a big bruise on his belly. Needs must. Needs must. Yeah. But uh, Bobby Heenan, again, again, like you say, very 1991. Actually, kind of, as, as much as I didn't really think about this, kind of an interestingly uh, telling sign of the times that would kind of come back to get him. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That Let's is just true. ignore this drug arrest. Yeah. Um, man, what a time, you know, when people just, you know, let me just pack 48 grams of weed <laughs> with me in my, in my bag. Yeah, I, well, a simpler time, but uh, uh, yeah, indeed. I, and and there's, there's actually stories throughout the nineties this happening. I think like didn't Hawk pass out on an airplane in '97, and like they need to like give him like CPR on the plane. Yes, that is true. I, I can't remember if it was '97 or not, but yeah, that was absolutely. I remember Hawk had some issues. There were there was a lot of stories of wrestlers passing on airplanes. They did not have the travel schedule uh, down pat yet, like they do. They didn't have like loops. Like your, I mean, obviously live event business is non-existent in 2020, and who knows if it's ever going to come back the way it was. But um, yeah, the, the, the stories of these guys traveled weird time zones, you know, doubling back to the time zone they were in, you know, two days before is crazy. Oh yeah, and it's just it's a, it's a scary deal with uh, as this kind of progresses throughout the decade. But here, let's be honest, kind of hilarious. Oh, it's great, it's great, and, and the fact <laughs> that it like. Hap- you know, the arrest happens on January 1st. What a tone setter 
for the World Wrestling Federation in 1991, <laughs> you know, with one of their lead managers, you know, getting arrested for having a bunch of weed on a plane. Yeah, they probably should have seen uh, the writing on the wall. Yeah. Um, if that was the worst thing that happened to them, I mean, my God, they would have been like doing cartwheels because it's it's nothing compared to like what we're going to get into here. No, it's not. And unfortunately, unlike Bobby Heenan, this one's a little bit more self-imposed. So obviously, we're going to talk now. We're going to go through the timeline of what happens with the Sergeant Slaughter push. Now, obviously, as we always say, uh, the notes are taken from the Wrestling Observer newsletter. So a uh, tip of the cap to Dave Meltzer for what we're going to read today. Um, but we're going to break in here on the January 21st Wrestling Observer. Um, at this writing, he says, and obviously this is the, the, the date of the Observer is always a couple of weeks ahead. So this would have been prior to January 15th, which we'll get to in a, in a moment. At this writing, says Meltzer, yeah, a possible war could break out in the Middle East within hours. That has become a significant factor, considering the original idea for this year's WrestleMania appears to have been Hulk Hogan versus Sergeant Slaughter on top. Originally, Hogan was going to visit the troops, and Slaughter was going to go heavy into the Iraqi gimmick. None of this may change, or it may. The Iraqi embassy is very hot at Vincent Mann because of his betrayal of Sergeant Slaughter and General Adnan. A lot of officials are worried that there may be a legitimate fan violence uh, situation should shooting actually break out in the Middle East because of the nature of the characters. The embassy has also demanded McMahon quit using Saddam Hussein's name in the hype for Slaughter, which may not be the worst of ideas given the current situation. Now, obviously, we are kind of jumping in there to uh, quite a tense situation. So we're going to backtrack a little bit here, Kyle, and kind of give more context on what's going on culturally. Yeah, first of all, I do want to say one thing. Uh, none of this may change, or it may, is the most Dave Meltzer sentence of all time. <laughs> you know what? I didn't even think about that when I made when we did the notes. I didn't actually yeah, read it back here aloud. <laughs> how, how many observers in 2020 has that been in? That's that very <laughs> sentence. None of this may change, or it that, may. It should, that should it be, should be the byline. Like, it should be the new catchphrase or like slogan. Uh, anyway, yes, let's provide some context for younger listeners and such who may be unfamiliar with what was going on in the world at the time. Uh, I was 11 years old at this time. I, I actually, I, I lied. I was 10. I, I didn't turn 11 until August of 91. But this was the first war of my lifetime, the Persian Gulf War. And something that's really key to go back and think about if you live through it or if you don't know is it was the first war of the 24-7 cable news era. Yes. And I can vividly remember CNN becoming a much bigger deal with how it was able to cover this war. You know, people were glued on the ability to follow this, you know, not maybe not necessarily in real time, but, you know, not having to wait for the 6 o'clock news, uh, you know, as you did in, you know, the Vietnam era, uh, was very big. It was a really big yeah. deal. Uh, yeah. The conflict... Began in August. Uh, you know, I think we had talked a little bit about this in the 1990 series. Uh, Saddam Hussein, Iraq, invaded Kuwait. Uh, so the WWF always knew that a war was a possibility here. Again, we're talking January. The original invasion had happened back in August. The United Nations sets a January 15th deadline. There's that date again, January 15th, uh, for Iraqi withdrawal from Kuwait. Uh, and that was at, that deadline was actually set on November 29th yeah. of 1990. So, again, they're rolling into the Royal Rumble, and we're going to talk a lot about this buildup for the Warriors Slaughter match and how they chose to do it. Uh, spoiler alert, Saddam Hussein does not withdraw from Kuwait. No, he doesn't. Uh, on the point of the cable news uh, aspect, I, I do remember, actually, one of my uh, kind of early memories is seeing a George Carlin stand-up from around this time where he's talking about the uh, the news coverage about how 
isn't this great that we can see, you know, if, if, if you know, we, we can watch the we can watch the war as it's going on in real time, and if our side's not winning on one channel, we can turn over and see if our side's winning over there. And uh, and that being obviously not not anything that I really understood at the time, but now looking at this in, in retrospect, <laughs> it's, it's a cracking line. But uh, yeah. it, it is it is quite an impressive kind of situation when you look at how public this is, and I think that's kind of one of the things culturally, like you mentioned. With it, people being able to get themselves engrossed in this 24-7, much the same way that I have been with the election this week, actually, now that I think about it, it's like it becomes a bigger part of the zeitgeist. Everybody can kind of see it's very public. Um, and obviously, like you say, November 29th is when they give the deadline, which means that at the start of 91, they know full well what they're doing. Um, they meaning WWF. Yes, absolutely. WWF knows what they're doing in terms of putting this match together. Uh, Meltzer adds, it was no coincidence that Sergeant Slaughter's shot at the WWF title against the Ultimate Warrior uh, was to come just four days after the UN deadline for Saddam Hussein to withdraw from Kuwait. Vince McMahon felt that by making Slaughter his world champion, only to lose to a flag-cloaked Hulk Hogan amidst a patriotic orgy of 100,000 fans at the LA Coliseum uh, would be the biggest money-making match in pro wrestling history. Is patriotic orgy Meltzer's words or your own? <laughs> Meltzer's. Okay, great. That's a great uh, turn of phrase there by Dave. I like that <laughs> quite a bit. Um, Something else I wanted to add in regards to the war. It was fairly popular at the time. Fairly, as far as like wars go. I mean, it was not the divisive um, hmm. decision that the second Iraq war was, obviously. Yes. Um, th- this one um, had more, you had more of an international coalition behind it. Um, you guys were involved as well. Uh, yeah, the record, there, was a, there was a worldwide ban on trade with, uh, with, uh, with, with Iraq while this was going on. Yeah. So it, it was not a real, it, it was, while there were obviously dissenters, and you, you can question some things as you can with any war, it, it was not the um, level of, of protest that, you know, um, a decade later when yeah. we went into Iraq uh, the second time. But I want to talk about Vince McMahon's thought process here about how Sergeant Slaughter as this Iraqi sympathizer winning the title and going against Hogan at WrestleMania would be the biggest money-making match in pro wrestling history. That's just a terrible read by Vince McMahon. I, I don't know. It's easy to say now with, you know, three decades of hindsight, but I don't know what would make him think that. There's no precedent for it, really. No, other than Sergeant Slaughter, Iron Sheik, in 84, which is seven years before what we're talking about here. I'm just going to... Ask you to put your cards on the table. Name me another time that xenophobia, overt patriotism, ever truly drew a big house for any promotion. You know, I've been sitting on this trying to think about the only thing that I can think about is how important it would have been to Japan post-World War II when Ricky Dozan was fighting foreigners. But that was about it, like in terms of like a star maker. But okay. I can't, in America, I can't, think of, I can't think of any territory that went this heavy on something like this and that did a, their record business. That is a great... Uh, uh, call out there that Ricky doesn't but it, but it's like such a reverse situation right yeah, exactly like a country exactly. like it's like a country that's like you know just been defeated and like needs to have its spirits lifted up and and whatnot um but yeah, yeah. it's not here in America it's a real punching down situation yeah you look at Hogan and his previous top line feuds by top line feuds I, I would say Piper Orndorf Andre and Savage yeah there was no USA USA in that no. It was all about, you know, with the exception of Piper, friends turning on him. 
And keep that in mind, folks, later when I drop uh, what could go down as one of the worst WrestleMania 7 ideas of all time. But something <laughs> I will peddle anyway. Um, it did not work really for Watts in 86 with Eddie Gilbert and the Russians. You know, I, I think it was uh, your countryman, Alan Sheepshot. He posted that angle to uh, Twitter when it, when it was the anniversary, whatever. They, well, this was months ago. Yeah. And Meltzer drops in with, well, you know, that didn't really draw. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was like just an incredible, like, you know, chance for Dave to chime in there. What well, that was unbelievable. Um, it never worked again after this failure. Uh, spoiler alert, Slaughter Hogan is not the biggest match in wrestling history. But, you know, Vince would try. Lex Luger in 93. That didn't work. So uh, I, I really, ironically, the only exception that I thought of domestically here was the U.S.-Canada feud in 97. But that obviously had no real basis in world politics. No, it you know, really it's not like, it's not like the U.S. Thing, and yeah. Canada were ever like had these like, you know, international tensions with each other. No, but if you actually, when you watch Wrestling with the Shadows, you think it might have started some. Yes, yes. Look at those fan reactions before SummerSlam. Yeah, I tell you what, I was getting ready to stick the NMO right in Pittsburgh myself for a time there last week. <laughs> Don't um, have to. Love you, Pittsburgh. Well, love yeah. You even, love you even more, Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, yes, indeed. A great wrestling town and a great town I, in general. I, the, the, hey, we got to talk about it, man. The wrestling town's delivered. They sure did. This week, Philly, Milwaukee, Detroit, Atlanta. Hello. Great sport of more for a reason. Mm-hmm. Just days before the match at the Royal Rumble, says Dave Meltzer, reality gets in the way. Uh, there was now legitimate U.S. bloodshed in the Persian Gulf. Nearly everyone involved with pro wrestling, both in and out of the WWF, believed that the current world situation would cause McMahon to pack this angle in. Oh, boy. Uh, while exploiting not-so-vague racial and xenophobic stereotypes as well within wrestling's normal bounds of poor taste, exploiting a legitimate war seemed to cross over the invisible line, says Dave. Yeah, and, you know, there's a lot of times you watch old wrestling and you see, you're like, you couldn't do that today. But what sets this apart from other, like, xenophobic angles of the past, some of the stuff, you know, the not-so-vague uh, racial stereotypes that they've mentioned is an actual war is taking place. So this yeah. is not, like, you know, something that would just be viewed as completely politically incorrect, like Kamala or, <laughs> yeah. or Saba Simba. You know, the, yeah. this, this, this is a different level because an actual war is going on and the war is the driving force in the top storyline in your promotion. Yeah, it's, it's as if Mohammed Hassan had come in as bin Laden's advisor. Oh, that is a great way to put it. Yes, yeah. that, that is a great way to put it. It's exactly what the modern equivalent could have been and thank God was not. No, no. Well, having said that. I've always had this because obviously I'm I'm younger than you and I'm a little bit more distance from this because uh, you know obviously the U.S. element. But the as a kid when I heard that this was going on, obviously the punch on me was not that impactful. I almost kind of took it as kind of a comical thing as of how absurd it seems on the surface. Like Sergeant Slaughter is Saddam Hussein's emissary and 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 is coming to take the WWF title for Iraq. Like as you say it out loud, it's pretty absurd. Sure, and you know, and wrestling is lucky in the sense that the way most people view it, you know, they don't take it seriously. Yeah. So, but <laughs> unfortunately, people got hot about this, for mm. them. and we're going to get into that. Uh, you know, moving forward, this is the one time where 
you know, people were like, hey, all right, fine, you're wrestling, we get it, it's supposed to be all fun and games, but this ain't cool, man. Yeah, and we, we and we will see why as we go through the television, because it becomes quite apparent on a rewatch exactly why uh, it incited those kind of feelings. Uh, however, it was inciting those feelings ahead of time. Many within the WWF front office, says Dave, feared a media backlash against such an obvious attempt to heavily exploit the war. A few heavy hitters in the front office were privately considering quitting the company because McMahon refused to change his WrestleMania plans. There were inter-office arguments even to the last minute before the Royal Rumble trying to convince McMahon to allow Warrior to win or at least change the Slaughter character. Uh, what we saw was Vince McMahon's call at the Rumble, and Pat Patterson was his main ally uh, in that direction. Vince McMahon refused to change WrestleMania plans, if only in 2020. <laughs> uh, if only he would have an original plan like this, you know, several months out. Obviously not like this one, but it yeah. had some sort of, uh, you know, long-term plan. Uh, yeah, so plans do not change, pal. Uh, I think we all agree that plans should have changed. But yes. Liam O'Rourke... I postulate to you this question. Was it fair to expect WWF to change plans? Nowadays, they clearly would have to change. And really, they couldn't do this angle to begin with, obviously. So it's yeah. kind of a non-starter. But in that era, as I kind of alluded to, changing long-term planning was very rare, almost unheard of. Yes. So what do you think? Uh, again, I think that you got a great point there in terms of that they were very rigid and very structured and, and kind of long-term focused. The only thing I could really think about was the switch at Mania 4 when Honky pulled his little power play and they end up putting the world title on Savage at Mania 4 instead of DBRC. But having said that, that didn't really change a ton of plans because Savage was going to work with DBRC after Mania anyway, even if DBRC won the title. So a switch, sure, but not one that really changed a great deal. And I think that a lot of the reason... As, as we talked about in the previous series in 1990, a lot of the reason why they went to this was because they, in their minds, they didn't have a great alternative. Yeah, that's a good call out because is there any other time we can think on top where there was a major detour Total switch in the national expansion era? I, like, I can't think of a title program that wasn't re- like clearly laid out. Like, you watch everything. It's like if you go back and watch the TV this year, and I think it's actually one of the hallmarks of, you know, the late 80s is it's very clear, you know, they had, you know, every top program in mind months before and they executed them well. Yeah. And that's all of the reason why, you know, the draft was so focused and such a great promotion was because they knew where they were going. Yeah. And, you know, as far as, you know, expecting them to change plans, we're going to get into this in a little bit. I think they get some information you know, or, or some numbers come in, at least initially, that probably indicated to them, this is working, and no, why would we change? This is actually working. Now, that yeah. turns out to be a mirage, and and we'll get into that momentarily, but it's something, I think, to keep in mind, uh, not excusing WF at all. Again, I think they should have changed, and I think the simple answer was to have Warrior retain at the Rumble, put Slaughter on ice, meaning take him off TV, and you go from there. Yeah. Uh, which presents a different set of challenges, though. And we talked about some options at the end of part three of our 90s series. But I do, as I teased earlier, Liam, have a new one that I'll address after we talk about WrestleMania 7. And I think you're going to be disgusted. <laughs> I, I, for, for the benefit of the listeners, I have been tempted and teased with whatever this idea is for months now. And this is going to be a hell of a payoff. So uh, I, I, I will say that that certainly seems 
like the answer. Now, as we're going to come to, there are indicators that may have kind of led them down the primrose path a little bit on how successful this was going to be. Um, it's kind of a, an interesting thing to note here. When you watch the television, and we'll talk about this now, it seems like very little else is being built up strong for the Royal Rumble pay-per-view outside of the title match. The Rumble itself kind of gets the uh, obligatory kind of here are the participants type of deal, and you get some promos from some of the guys. But, you know, Rockers Orient doesn't really get a turn. Bossman Barbarian doesn't particularly get a lot of focus. It really, I mean, even the Rhodes match, obviously because Dusty and Dustin are on their way out, They've already kind of transitioned to DiBiase Virgil as, as kind of the focus. This is the big deal on this pay-per-view. It is Slaughter, it's Warrior, incorporating the Q80 deadline and the promos. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, and so it is interesting. This is the first time there was a WWF title match on a Royal Rumble pay-per-view. Yeah. 89 didn't have it. 90 didn't have it. Um, Survivor Series uh, had never had a world title match up to this point. Um, SummerSlam, you go and look back, two of those were main evented by tag team matches. So the right. fact that there was a world title match on the show is a pretty significant deal, quite frankly. So it's not a surprise that that was the main focus. Um, you're right, with the Rumble, it was so obvious Hogan was going to win. Um, and we'll get into that in a little bit. And then the undercard was the undercard. Uh, although it's actually the undercard completely overdelivers something we'll get into as well <laughs> later on. But the Warrior Slaughter. Build. Okay, let's talk about this. Going in, like you, I assume, I expected tastelessness. Yeah. Because that's the narrative, right? But I mentioned this earlier. A lot of times you go back, um, you expect wrestling to be kind of tasteless to a certain degree. And you're just like, ah, well, that was the times, you know? And it's like, it's not cool now to do it, but that was the times. What shocked me about watching these promos and this build to this Warrior Slaughter match at 1991 Royal Rumble is the poor taste was even worse than I remembered. Which was shocking to me. I was like, oh, yeah. I'm sitting there watching, like, this is bad. <laughs> There's not a shred of subtlety to this thing. It is Sergeant Slaughter screaming in a promo, Saddam will never leave Q8. Warrior, your deadline is next week at the Royal Rumble. It's, it, it, it's, again, it's there is a real-life war deadline going on here, folks. <laughs> And, and Warrior coming back with Saddam Hussein, you take your troops out of Kuwait. Oh, yeah, demanding he leave on the 15th. Yes. Um, we also cannot forget Saddam Hussein, quote unquote, presenting Sergeant Slaughter special boots. <laughs> the, the, the obvious sign of a true foreign heel. Yes, he received, and he was, he, um, we had direct references, as you mentioned, to Saddam's real life actions. Those are real bad. I mean, that's real bad. Like, talking about, like, you know, what a t- you know, Sarge talking about how, you know, Saddam Hussein doesn't, you know, accept anything but, like, you know, unconditional surrender. surrender it's, like, yeah. real bad. And, uh, you know, maybe if we could lighten the mood a little bit, just laugh it up a little bit, we have got to reference what I have in my notes described as a county fair-like Iraqi flag with Saddam's face airbrushed on it. This is on the Brother Love Show. This is one of those moments when I watch these things back, and I was just agog, because I, obviously, you know what it is. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's this giant, this giant flag with an airbrushed Saddam Hussein that looks like Ron Jeremy, if I can be quite He surprised. does kind of look like Ron Jeremy, yeah. It's not even, I don't think it's a very good picture of stuff, but it's like, it's one of those cheesy things. It's like, yeah. I don't know what the UK equivalent would be, but we have like, you know, 
I'm in Cuyahoga County here in Ohio. We have like a county fair every year. It's just yeah. whatever. It's some like some silly thing with some rides and some stupid games. But it's like it reminded me of like a, you know like like a NASCAR flag that you would try to win <laughs> if you pop the balloons at the county fair, where it's got like you know. I don't know if Jeff Gordon even races anymore. I don't think he does. I don't know. Whoever's like a good NASCAR driver, it's like their car airbrushed like on a flag or something like that. It just it was so hideous looking. Whoever did that. <laughs> and he's just carrying it around, he's just holding it over his shoulder like it's the most normal thing in the world. It's just again, like the absurdity of it to me is just like it's kinda hard to get past, but when you, you hear the verbiage, you hear the dialogue, and you hear how like Yeah, especially the announcers, the announcers really sell this serious. And so because they do it comes off like this is a really heavy deal. Yeah, and you really, again, looking at the history of, you know, WWF in its national expansion, they hadn't done anything really heavy heat like this. No, before, no nothing, nothing really. I mean, again, like, it was all, you know, within the context of the wrestling show. This one hits harder, for sure. Yeah, what, what was the most heavy heat angle you think WWF had done up until this point? Maybe some of the racial stuff Piper said to Mr. T. I guess that's probably the closest I can think of. Yeah, I think that's a good call. I think it's a good call. And this would obviously, you know, the Saddam references, just, you know, treating a match like an extension of the war only gets worse when the feud transitions to Hogan. Yeah, absolutely. Now, having said that, we have marched towards the Royal Rumble. And as this rumble happens, and we talked about previously, um, you know, the, the, the 89 and 1990 rumble buy rates that we talked about in the previous uh, series, never really a super strong pay-per-view, the Royal Rumble, probably because there's nothing on the line. But here, the 1991 Royal Rumble does a better than a 3.0 buy rate, a huge number. And of course, the Warrior does in fact lose the title, and Hulk Hogan does in fact win the Royal Rumble. Now, I, I should actually just to segue briefly to the Hogan rumble situation, which we're going to talk about shortly. Hogan's promos in the build-up to this, hilarious, <laughs> by the way. I know we're going to come to this in a second, but just the idea that like it, with this one show, they have completely adjusted the trajectory of what is going to be the top angles. Warrior is pretty much kind of out of the mix, working clearly now exclusively with Savage, while Hogan and Slaughter are clearly on a, uh, on a collision course. But a huge, huge number for, for rumble standards. Yeah, and this is kind of what I alluded to, right? Now, obviously, you don't find out the buy rate till after the show. Maybe they had, I don't know how soon they had a good idea that it did well, but, I mean, this was a really good number. Buys were way up from the 1990 yeah. rumble. Way up. Um, so, and you mentioned it, the show was pretty much built upon the Warrior Slaughter title match. So one can only infer people, I guess, wanted to see that match. <laughs> a lot mm -hmm. and as we're going to see moving forward it's very clear that the wrong person won that match <laughs> uh, because you know there's some real historical um factoids we can go over with the what the mania buy rate does relative to this a uh, very strong rumble buy rate we, we as you mentioned discussed how shockingly good it was at the end of our 1990 timeline uh the match itself warrior and slaughter Let's talk about it for a minute, what they do. Yeah. They do an angle on the pay-per-view, which was kind of unique. This was something they didn't do uh, very often, mm. uh, where Randy Savage, who's already been, quote-unquote, promised the first shot if Slaughter wins. Uh, by the way, he never gets that title shot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they did just a little tidbit. He demands <laughs> the Warrior give him a title shot if he were to win. 
He sends Sherry out to, quote-unquote, seduce the warrior in a memorable, quote-unquote, ahem bit. Uh, <laughs> Sherry basically, uh, you know, the illusion here is that she is offering to blow the warrior uh, for a title <laughs> opportunity. Watch the, yeah. watch the promo, folks. That's basically what it is. Okay, they don't say it. They don't have Girl Monsoon going, my God, she's trying to blow him. But that's basically what they're alluding to. <laughs> hey, oh, uh, the, the warrior refuses these advances, which is odd for a baby face and as a man, quite frankly. Well, you know what? <laughs> Maybe we'll find out later in the year why. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that you found that. Oh, I can't wait to go over that. But, no. <laughs> Yeah, so isn't that kind of weird that the warrior like doesn't want to defend his title? Yeah, no, no defense. As the baby no face, advances. he's like, no, I'm not going to defend the title. And but, you know, it drew, a, it drew a huge pop when he says no and he turns it her did. down. Uh, and this refusal leads to Savage and Sherry freely inter, uh, interfering in the Warrior Savage title match or Warrior Slaughter title match, pardon me, and costing Warrior the title. I actually think, and I know you've watched it somewhat recently. The match is much better than one would think. I am. I've always been a fan of this match. I think this is a, a little underrated gem because what you know, Slaughter's working hard. You know, he's bumping his ass off. He's trying, and you know, you're only going to get so good there. But just the the story of the overall match. You know, Savage with one of the great run-ins of all time. Yes. Just, just you can see smoke coming off his feet when he's running to the back after he attacks the warrior. It's unbelievable. Um. Where the hell did he come from? Yeah, it's just it's so it's That's so That's a great good. line by Roddy Piper. Yeah, it's easy. He had a good show, I thought, at the Rumble with uh, with some of his lines. But uh, yeah, I, this this is a good this is a very good match. This, uh, Jesus Christ, the heat when the Warrior rips the flag is unreal. And again, okay, we're gonna get in. We don't want to be hypocritical on this because we want to talk about you know what we see with our eyes. You know, we're going to talk about how tasteless it was and how it ultimately was bad for business. You would not have known that watching this show. Mm-hmm. I mean, forget the buy rate obviously um, supports that this angle was working. But, yeah, that crowd heat was unfrickin' real during this match. Uh, the level of interference we got also pretty rare for a WWF title match during this yeah. time. It's something we expect a lot now. Um, and, obviously, uh, you know, transitioning to a heel world champion was – you know, something that I, I guess they felt the need to have that level of interference because a heel title win just didn't happen. I mean, this was the first title win by a heel, I guess, since the Andre thing. Which, again, hyper-protection. Yeah, uh, but that wasn't going to lead to a run. They, you know, they obviously just set up a deal where it was going to be vacated. It was all all angle. Um, and then before that one, there hadn't been a heel title win since Sheik beat Backlund. So yeah. this is only the second heel title win in the company in seven years. So yeah. I think that level of interference was something they felt they needed to do. And it did add to the match because you talk about Slaughter bumping his ass up. Randy Savage and Sherry were like MVPs in this deal. Oh, because God. predictably, Warrior and Slaughter kind of gassed towards the end of it. it, it <laughs> but the interference, um, I think, adds, does not hurt the match at all. So, um, yeah, I think it is a much better match than people think. They see the names Warrior Slaughter, 1991. Oh, how good could it be? I, I think it over-delivers, folks. It does. It over-delivers. There's, there's great heat in the crowd. Like you say, it, it slows down when Slaughter's in control. But uh, they, they oh, pick God, it up. His offense during this period was hideous. Oh, God, the stomps. <laughs> yes, and the atomic noogie. Oh, my goodness. And the fact that he wins the belt with the Iraqi people's elbow after the scepter shot. No, 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 not like this, not like this. 
<laughs> I, you know what? Again, I think Piper's great in this match. I mean, I know that Piper gets a lot of flack for his commentary, and rightly so in most cases. And we but I think he's good. The last one? Yeah. He was not good when he started, but he had gotten uh, a lot better by this point. Um, I remember one time, I don't know why this just came to me, but my old roommate, Josh, we were like, I don't know, getting ready to go out or something like that, and we've been drinking, and I just ran up to him one time from when he wasn't looking, and just gave this like really hard knee in the back. <laughs> and, I, and I go, what a hard knee by Slaughter! <laughs> and that's like the same thing. I have no idea why that just would come to me, but I was just thinking of Finch, because like, Slaughter hits him with his heart, Warrior with his hard knee, setting word to the ropes, which sets up the scepter shot. But yeah, I'll never forget just kneeing the hell out of my buddy. And, you know, <laughs> me just going, what a hard knee by Slaughter! I have problems. Oh man, that's great. But uh, and, and hey, Piper's Piper's furious on commentary when this happens. He's, he's you know, I like the way they play it too. Where I was like, ball, ball. There's going to be referees coming out to, to, you know, this is such a ridiculous thing. And then like they announce it, and it just gets a chorus of boos. And I think that, that is a really cool deal. You're right. Like, yeah. it was kind of like that. Like, oh well, I guess he wins because it was kind of three. There's like gorilla and piper did this job it's like okay well there was a pinfall but somebody's gonna say something and they're not you know they're not giving this to slaughter yeah. and then they yeah. don't yeah i mean it, it, the announcement of sergeant slaughter new champion um gets great heat and then gorilla and piper to their credit sell it exactly as they should yeah now obviously there seems to be a massive tone shift in the coverage as we'll come to following this actually happening. Yeah, you mentioned I just Hogan want to before. say one thing about okay. the Rumble, because yeah, we'll just scoot past this. I mean, yeah. uh, Hogan winning the Rumble was a total formality from the promos on television like yes. we saw. And it was obviously the only option for the show if you are going to put the WF title on Slaughter. Uh, yeah. Savage, who's in the Rumble, no shows. He does not come out. That was the first time they ever did this gimmick. Uh, and he do- obviously based on the earlier angle, because Warrior, I think, chased him out of the building is what it was inferred. Um, something that needs to be said, while I think the undercard on this Rumble delivers tremendously, the Rumble match itself was the weakest of the first three pay-per-view versions, in my opinion. Yeah, I'd agree with that. 89 is is, is shady good. People kind of forget about that. 90 is a blast. Mm-hmm. Um, and 91, yeah, again, the, the, the formality of it doesn't help. Um, there's just, yeah, there's really just no one else. Like, on. There's no one believable, too. It's not just that it's like so logical that Hogan would win it's there's no one really there to cast those seeds of doubt yeah there's nothing really engaging they you know the earthquake and Hogan are the final two um uh, you know again even on television it's hilarious you know the kind of the the sense of inevitability of Hogan winning again by the way in his promos notably telling his friends that he's going to eliminate them even if they're friendly towards him yes <laughs> that is babyface Hulk Hogan acting like the babyface he always was yeah yeah well, there you go. But I uh, absolutely agree with that. There's, there's very little else underneath. I mean, LOD are in there, Taker's in there, but none of them feel like they're in the, the sphere of Hogan. No, perfect. Um, who else? Yeah. Rick Martell and Greg Valentine. Well, Martell made sense because he was you know getting a big push opposite Jake. But like Greg Valentine getting that long run, even though I don't think they had really pushed his babyface turn yet on television. No. Okay, so it's just That's like, perfect. oh, here, here's Greg Valentine in there for a really long time. Yeah. <laughs> supposedly a rib right yes yes we talked about that in 1990 yeah that it was a rib because he went to work for herb abrams <laughs> wrestling's a strange beast yes imagine that imagine yes imagine getting 40 minutes of ring time because you uh work for herb abrams <laughs> uh so as we mentioned when they do the switch a very noticeable uh 
change in the coverage. The the, the Observer really writes a, a great deal about, in a, a, a big case, about the tastelessness and the questionable nature of, of going this direction. Um, page 10 and 11 of the WF magazine describes last Friday, says Meltzer, had a story on Slaughter's title win, playing up the Iraqi angle stronger than ever, saying that Saddam Hussein is planning to give Sergeant Slaughter a medal and talking of a parade in Baghdad for Sergeant Slaughter for winning the WWF championship. Yeah, so something as we progress through 1991, I'll reference a little bit more, probably not so much uh, in this particular episode, but I have a lot of WF magazines uh, from 1991, not the first couple months. So I don't have this one, sadly, but Slaughter, uh, if you watch some of the TV from this period, he clearly was referencing a parade, quote-unquote, in his promos before the Rumble as well. So it wasn't like the, the WF magazine invented this. that They had been pushing this idea um, even before the match itself and the title change. Yeah, some more of those... Uh... Deceptive signs, however, um, we were talking about the buy rate for the Rumble being up, and we talked previously about house shows being kind of slow in 1990. Crowds for the Hulk Hogan earthquake stretcher matches remain strong, says Meltzer, doing 11,000 in Calgary on February 9th, 10,000 in Pittsburgh on February 15th, 14 in the Nassau Coliseum on the 16th of February, and uh, 9,000, which is just over half a house in Orlando for a TV taping. Um, on the 18th of February. So it seems on the surface that Hogan moving back towards the belt seems like it may have been a missing ingredient. If you look at this from kind of a bit of a distance. Yeah. And those numbers are a lot better than the numbers we were talking about. 1990 when we went over the house show struggles, uh, Meltzer, this is interesting. This is something he wrote, uh, with 12 years of hindsight. He wrote it, a 2003 observer that, he actually had posted uh, the back issue for uh, during the time uh, that we finished doing the 90 series and we're putting together our notes uh, for this here, um, that fans who were going to the house shows during this time period did not seem to be offended or turned off in any way by the slaughter angle. Yeah, and that's interesting, only because we talked about this in 1990, about how when slaughter's doing this stuff, it is happening to a massive void of heat. Like, there, it's not like, until he wins the belt, there isn't, like, this huge parade of disgust for Slaughter. He actually feels like a pretty cold heel until they pair him with Warrior. Yeah, and he does the big number on pay-per-view with Warrior. And then, to be fair, these house show numbers are happening, uh, you know, not because of Slaughter. This is a Hogan earthquake program mm-hmm. here. And so Hogan's doing well in the houses, again. So we had talked about, you know, Vince having to even hit the road to try to find, try to get the Hogan magic back. So you've got that great pay-per-view number with Slaughter. You got the good house show numbers with Hogan. I think given those two things, the WWE, it is fair to say, was tricked into thinking this is working. Yeah, I mean, you can you can kind of see why. Now, there are other indicators, one that we're going to talk about very shortly, that is in the opposite direction. But yes. living in the moment, if you are if you are kind of a, a prisoner of the fog of war, as they say, then you can kind of see why they may have been fooled into thinking, you know, Slaughter was a cold heel, but when we put him on top, it was hot. Hogan, he's hot again. These are the two hot characters, and we're going to put them together at WrestleMania. Yeah, so, I mean, when we, I asked moments ago, is it fair to expect that the WWF would change this main event program for WrestleMania? I don't know, because they probably, in their mind, you know, as we roll into February, which is a uh, going to tell a very different story about what the, <laughs> the, this main event program. But, you know, as we roll into February, they think it's working. Yeah. And, and maybe it was. Maybe, you know, I mean, who's to say? I was not reading 
the newsletters in 91. I mean, it was tasteless, obviously, but, you know, if you're just a casual observer and, you know, think about it, like on Twitter, you know, today, if you get these house show numbers and you get the rumble by rate and you look at them, you're like, oh, okay, maybe, okay, I guess it's pretty tasteless, but it seems like it's working mm. based on that. Yeah. But unfortunately, by the time we find out it wasn't working, it's too little too late. Uh, they've, you know, they're kind of up to their knees and shit, so to speak. <laughs> and it doesn't take long because we are in mid-February when the news comes out, the big news of the past week in the, in the middle of February, the live site for WrestleMania 7 has been moved from the 105,000-seat L.A. Memorial Coliseum to the 15,500-seat L.A. Sports Arena. Uh, Meltzer says, while the advance of WrestleMania is huge, nearly $2 million, he says, tickets haven't been moving well of late, and there are still 70,000 sh seats shy of a full house. Keep that number in mind, because this changes uh, as time goes by. I was told that the current plan, which changes on a daily basis, he says, was to acknowledge publicly the change in sites was to, sorry, to not acknowledge publicly the change in sites and to simply advertise, as everything was done this weekend, that WrestleMania will be coming from Los Angeles and not even mention the name of the site. I believe there were between 20 and 23,000 tickets out for WrestleMania already. One source close to box office figures insists, however, that the actual paid attendance that they've got so far is only 12,000. But that figure is well below the numbers I've heard all along, he says. Uh, this is interesting, because as I was going through the 1990 observers for the previous series, they do talk about how they're doing, they're doing, you know, they've had a huge first day for WrestleMania 7 at the, at the Memorial Coliseum. These numbers, these, these 20 to 25 to 23 to 25, that's kind of the trajectory of ticket sales that they are hinting at in the Observer all along. And then as it comes out, that's what the WF saying is not necessarily what's happening. Um, the WWF, in its letter to fans who had purchased tickets informing them of the site change, says Meltzer, is now claiming that this year's WrestleMania was the fastest sellout in the history of the WWF. What a piece of business that is. <laughs> a beautiful technicality. I won the election. <laughs> a beautiful, uh, yeah, a great comparison. This idea that they had 15,000 seats sold out in one building, a stadium, moved it to another that only seats 15,000, and then claimed it's a fast sellout. So that's brilliant. Yeah, and for those keeping score at home, uh, the L.A. Sports Arena, where WrestleMania 7 does happen, uh, was the site of the L.A. portion of WrestleMania 2 as well. Yes. The Clippers played there uh, in the 80s and into the 90s, um, while the Lakers had the Forum. Indeed. I, uh... There's actually more to this. In the following weeks, uh, a letter gets written into the Observer saying, according to a friend of mine who works for Ticketron, uh, there were only 14,000 tickets out for the WrestleMania at the Coliseum. This is the only reason, according to official at the sports arena, that the site was changed. Since 15,333 is the sports arena, there will be no unnecessary hassles. Uh, it was implied to me that if more than 16,000 seats were out, the event would not have been taking place at the sports arena. Okay, let's yeah. talk about this venue change because it is significant. Uh, yes. Up until this year, it is the only time uh, WrestleMania had to change sites. Uh, of course, much different situation, mm -hmm. um, you know, being that 2020 was pandemic related. Okay, let's humor ourselves for a minute. I'm not advocating this, Liam O'Rourke, but let's just humor <laughs> ourselves and take the Bruce Pritchard tact here, okay? Let's okay. just entertain what he says. Let's just say there were logistical hurdles for security related to the war, which is what Bruce Peddles and some other, and 
yeah. is going to pedal and say, oh, well, you know, we actually wanted to still do it at the stadium, but, you know, they were asking so much of us for security reasons and that wasn't worth it. Okay. Now, I think you and I both would agree that's probably not true. Yeah, that's all shit. Okay. okay. There is no getting around the fact, and I have to really stress this to the listeners, WWF was never going to come close to filling this Coliseum. No. And that alone necessitated the venue change. Wrestling, as we talked about uh, in three wonderful episodes covering 1990, was just not hot enough anymore, and there was no angle, this or anything else, that was going to draw close to 100,000 people in 1991. No, not at all. Business had been uh, demonstrably cold for a year, and the idea of, uh, you know, build it and they will come did certainly not apply here. No, not at all. I, I just, you know, you could talk about, and again, I've got an idea that I think will make you sigh uh, quite loudly, but there's just nothing you are going to do at WrestleMania 7 uh, that could fill up the uh, Coliseum. There's just no way. And it obviously, you know, Vince, optics were such, they've always of how he likes to present wrestling. Um, there's no way he did not want to, you know, be like Fritz von Erich running the cotton bowl in 86. So no, <laughs> have to move. Yeah. The, the, the move was necessary anyway. I, I don't see, I mean, the fact that they had, I mean, they, they've been, they've been plugging this so hard for so long. I mean, this was being announced on, you know, that those, if you go back and watch those old pay-per-views that the, the, the advert is, is on all of them plug in that this massive show is going to happen. And it just never does. It comes out later that the sports arena was sold out for WrestleMania 7. Approximately 12,700 people paid with 2,000 freebies uh, for a live gate of not $2 million, 975,000. Again, WWF a little bit perhaps insecure about the way that this is actually going in reality. Yeah, yeah those insecurities would hit an all-time apex in the middle of WrestleMania <laughs> 7, as we'll get into a little bit later on. Yeah, and unfortunately, the bad press that we were talking about after the, the rumble, it kind of escalates now. The Defense Department uh, nixed Hulk Hogan's planned trip to see the troops overseas that the WWF and the USO were looking to arrange. Yes, so the war underway, obviously, like I said, spoiler alert, Saddam Hussein does not withdraw. <laughs> we are in the midst of a war, mm -hmm. and uh, Hogan does end up going on a few uh, of these overseas trips. He eventually does. And they were publicized despite WWF saying they wouldn't be. <laughs> Which is brilliant. I mean, yeah, he, that, just, he just happened to be there. Yeah. Not only were they publicized, it was like the lead on the intro to the main event on NBC. Oh, good grief. See, I remember him visiting a bunch of the families. I don't remember if he went overseas or not. I was looking at it. It's like, I remember him seeing like troops and stuff in hospitals. Oh, was that? Okay. I, I, maybe I'm wrong then. Okay. When they showed up, I, I thought he did. They said he did go over there eventually. Maybe okay, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I apologize if I am. So now we're really getting into the media storm. The media storm, they pick up the fact that this is happening now. Fun WWF is doing something that's completely hideous and tasteless, given the tenor of the times. And apparently there are some denials about, you know, the, the, the how can we say this, the plausible deniability of what they knew was going to happen or what they expected the WWF about this situation. And Meltzer writes, how come many weeks back after the UN resolution was passed, listing the January 15th date for Saddam Hussein to withdraw from Kuwait, I was told by someone within the World Wrestling Federation that this would be the biggest WrestleMania ever because Slaughter was going to win the title, he was going to burn the flag, and Hogan would then go to Saudi Arabia and visit the troops. Again, that quote and the whole Rumble Mania build completely contradict people like Bruce Pritchard, 
who on his show has made it seem like this war declaration was this inconvenient reality that happened around their pay-per-view. Like, oh, well, we had this angle, and then all of a sudden there's a war right around it. That you knew there could be a war. You exploited it, and it blew up in your face. Yeah. It's so great when it gets exposed and blows up so severely, you know? I mean, that level of lying, just to like, you know, because I listened when they talked about this period, and Bruce is like so adamant. Well, you know, we didn't know, you know, unfortunately, then, you know, we, we go in and we declare war. Oh, we didn't know that could happen. Yes, you did. (laughs) <laughs> you talked about it on television for christ's sake mm-hmm. yeah i mean that was the thing too just like that that because i had listened to that podcast i guess i was like all right well uh, he's obviously full of shit but you know you know maybe i don't know th- there's some way he can like justify it. but you watch the tv and there's just no justification for it so. no and and it's that thing that, that you know it happens a lot with you know people of this ilk where they try to get away with as much as they can until it turns out to not be a good thing, and then they try and wash their hands and absolve themselves of it. And unfortunately, it wasn't working because newspapers all over the country were blasting the WWF for the angle. Mark Madden uh, wrote a piece in uh, in Pittsburgh, I think it was in the Post-Gazette, on Slaughter with a lot of quotes from Slaughter's dad, who he'd phoned up uh, to try and kind of get some quotes from him. Alex Marvez writes a piece in the uh, Miami Herald slamming the angle. Uh, I think you actually, I think you've seen these, haven't you? You know, a Mark, the Madden one reads exactly like you would expect the Mark Madden one to read, and I thought Marvez's was kind of like, okay, I, I should go here. Che- I should go and check those out. Madden's, I know, when he was talking to his dad, I think, didn't his dad kind of hint at the fact that Sergeant Slaw didn't want to do this? <laughs> yes. Yes, and that, like, it was kind of like, well, Sarge, if you want one last run of the big time, you know. This is pretty much it, what you got to do. It's time to pick up the airbrush flag. <laughs> they had it in the garage already. Yeah. It was in the prop. It was in the prop uh, department. <laughs> oh, good God! Uh, everything that needs to be said regarding the taste factor in the most controversial wrestling angle in this country in years has been said, says Dave Meltzer. Not just in newsletters, but in newspapers around the country, magazines, and even in Sports Illustrated. Uh, major newspapers have called for letter writing campaigns that takes you back, not only to the WWF but to its sponsors. This is not good public relations, particularly during a time where advertisers are overly sensitive to begin with. There may well be no long-term effects as far as advertisers are concerned, says Dave. Uh, The general public, which has shunned this angle because of bad taste, uh, as both media reaction and the TV ratings clearly show, may slowly drift back. Nope, they didn't. (laughs) The general public did not slowly drift back, and public relations only got worse as the year rolled along. Yes, which again leads to a kind of a very interesting question that is is worth asking about the uh, when people get desperate in wrestling, especially Vince. You know, when Vince gets desperate and he makes these moves that you just and again, I, I see where Meltzer's coming from here because historically speaking, things like this that happen in wrestling end up being like a tornado in a teacup, right? Like it becomes a big drama, it might have a small effect or it might have a negligible effect, and then it goes away. But the ratings, as he mentions here. When the ratings leave and people break the habit of watching the show, it's pretty hard to to pull that back. Yeah, especially if it's kind of like same old, same old, right? Like if you're just going to roll with Hogan and, you know, Hogan becomes obviously further tainted as 1991 rolls along, (laughs) you're just not going to get people back. Um, It took a complete revamping of the product six years later to get people back. Yeah, yeah. 
certainly to the general media, says Dave, the days of wrestling being scrutinized only for the laughable and behind the, hi- behind the times question of simply whether it is real or fake are over. It's become fashionable to take the WWF to task for exploiting the war. This is not to pick on the WWF as the only corporate in either poor taste or false advertising in wrestling, but this is a very visible time in the company's history and its decisions have never been more open to more media scrutiny. Which I like that line a lot because that is something they became blissfully unaware of. Yes, uh, it's very different from today. You know, when obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, everything is made, you know, just kind of, you know, how they're viewed, um, you know, in corporate America now that they're a publicly traded company. So I remember my own paper here in Cleveland, The Plain Dealer, having an editorial ripping on this angle. And, you know, I remember my dad, he brought the newspaper down. He was like, look what they're saying about the WWF in the paper. I was like, wow, okay. And, you know, as a 10-year-old wrestling fan, maybe I didn't totally get, like, how horrible it was what they were doing. But, like, I'm like, oh, what the hell, man? They're ripping on WWF. That's not fair. <laughs> but um, I vividly remember that. And, you know, when I'm putting the notes together, I just I just wanted to mention that. I'm like, yeah, there's no way I'll ever be able to find that article in the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Well, update. Uh, Meltzer reprinted it in the February t- uh, 18th issue. Yeah, that was something I, I was, else. Yeah, I was like, wow, there it is. And, you know, it wasn't like any jaw-breaking stuff, but, uh, you know, I thought it was written better than Marvez's, to be honest. But that's <laughs> well, you know, I think it's interesting because it's like, as a kid, I remember the first time I saw wrestling being reported on in, in newspapers, and it was it was very jarring over here because it was stuff like, you know, when Bulldog got his court case for, what was the deal where, like, he choked a dude out and, like, almost paralyzed him or whatever it was in a club? And, like, that yes. was, like, big news over here. That, that that made it to the papers. And then, like, later on, when the uh, the Lionel Tate situation took place in, like, the year 2000 with him killing uh, Tiffany, Tiffany Eudick, that got a lot of coverage over here because, obviously, DeBeff was hot at the time. And I can imagine – I don't I, – correct me if I'm wrong. Was there a lot of stuff like this in, in papers over there, like, prior the, to this? The only time prior to this that the that I, at least – being mentioned in the Cleveland Plain Dealer was when they reprinted the results of Survivor Series 87 and 88 on the on the like the last page because it took place here in Cleveland. It took place in Cleveland, yeah. yeah it, was, it, was <laughs> like, it, was, it reported the results just like, you know, like, you know, like the, right next to like the hockey scores. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure the yeah, uh, I'm sure the sports fans loved it. Yes, I was like kind of fired up because I didn't order any of those pay per views, and I, that was that was actually how I found out what had happened. Oh wow! So we have here a, a, another notable uh, negative. Bob Costas pulls out of WrestleMania this past Thursday. Uh, says they, according to NBC publicity, there were several reasons for Bob's decision, but the way the show was hyped was a key reason in his pulling out. I bet it was. Uh, Costas was quoted over the weekend in the Miami Herald and saying, under the circumstances, I don't think doing the show would be in the best of taste. Uh, Costas was scheduled to be involved in an instant replay controversy regarding one of the finishes of the show with George Steinbrenner and Paul McGuire, a real snooze fest of an intermission. Yeah, and Vince ends up hosting this instant replay debate between Steinbrenner and McGuire, and it is super lame with the Bushwhackers as the uh, people handling the VAR. I'm sure your uh, <laughs> friends over on the other side of the pond will enjoy that reference. Yeah. Uh, a very good career choice by Bob Costas uh, to not go to WrestleMania 7, but of course he would uh, you know, cross paths with Vince in a more uh, memorable way uh, several years later. Yeah, Vince would remember this. Yeah, I wonder if that's why he was so hot at him. Yeah, Knowing Vince and how spiteful he is, I'm sure it was. 
Oh, but I'll bet I played some part in it. It's interesting because obviously for those who have watched uh, The Last Dance, the the, the Jordan documentary, cost this. Before the Last Dance documentaries came out on Netflix this year, I'd gone back to watch the Bulls uh, Jazz series in the NBA Finals in '98 just to watch it. Um, and obviously the the Carmelone Dennis Rodman fracas that leads to well, it leads to, but they're, they're going to wrestle at Bash at the Beach. Costas throws some shit wrestling in the uh, in the in the tussle that takes place between them on the on the hardwood floor, and basically says they're doing a match, a wrestling match, and I don't know why those two would lower themselves to doing something like that. So Costas basically yeah. turns off wrestling because he himself was on the water set of the score. Yes, he was a wrestling fan, and then yeah. he turned on it. And obviously, and, you know, I'm not taking sides in this thing or whatever, but between Bob Costas and WWF slash E. But, uh, you know, him criticizing Malone and Rodman did lead to one of the all-time uh, funniest quotes when Carl Malone got wind of what Costas said, and he replied, quote, fuck Bob Costas. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yes. Oh, that's great. Yes. Good stuff, Carl. Yeah. Oh, Carl sticking up for pro wrestling. He is. What a man. What a man. Had a good, uh, he, he, Will, he could do a diamond cutter. They taught him well. Yeah, they, they did. Uh, Willie Nelson is also announced as singing the national anthem, clad, by the way, in just the smorgasbord of memorabilia. Um, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they must have sent him straight from the uh, merchandise booth or something like that. Just, yeah, he, <laughs> just put everything you can on him. Yeah, just that icy belt, just slap that on. Yeah, that looks great. That looks great. Roseanne Barr was supposed to be there as well in some capacity and, and didn't show up. No, no Roseanne, but we did get the recently passed uh, Regis yes. was there. Marla Maples was involved, Trump's second wife. Uh, Trump is actually himself in the crowd at WrestleMania 7. He is. He, he's just, there for the uh, the two main matches. Doesn't stick around for Earthquake and Valentine. No. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> I guess maybe he's not as dumb as we thought. But anyway... <laughs> uh, Costas is replaced by Alex Trebek, host of Jeopardy, who I believe got scarred for life when in a backstage interview, Mr. Fuji uh, referred to uh, Janichiro Tenru and Koji Katao as, quote, Japs in a backstage interview. (laughs) Oh, God. It really was a different time. Yeah. I believe – so I don't know because I didn't rewatch the segment on Mania. I don't know if they edited it out. I could see the network editing out because they – in WrestleMania 2, do you remember – what Paul Orndorff oh, does at the beginning of the, the match. Slant eyes, the slant yeah, eyes. When he does Fuji. the slant eyes thing towards Fuji, and whatever, we're not, it's, just, it's like really horrible. They took that out. It's not it anymore. Yeah. Because I used to always be like, oh my God, that is so horrible. I can't yeah. believe they did that. And then I watched WrestleMania 2, like, I don't know, like a year or so ago. Or, and then like, it's out. So I wonder if they pulled, yes, Fuji re, uh, refers to Tenru Katao as, quote, our Jap opponents. And I believe Alex Trebek's response was, excuse me, did you say Japs? <laughs> That might still be in. I did. I did see a, an episode of Primetime in '89 where, like, Gorilla and Bobby are going back and forth at the desk, and we're going to talk about Primetime in a little bit. But I'll, I'll throw this in here. And Monsoon basically suggests that he stooges off Heenan to Jimmy Hart, and oh, yes. Heenan gets this great look on his face and hands the phone to Monsoon and says, "Here you go. Why don't you call Fuji and tell him that I called him a miserable Jap?" Yes, I mean that is just like yeah. And so you're right. Breaks. Yeah, they, they, I mean, um, they, they probably didn't go through all those prime times, I guess, but maybe for something like Russell, I don't know. Yeah. So who knows? I, I should have gone back and, and double checked to see if it was still in, but yes, Al- Alex was scarred for life by Mr. Fuji. <laughs> uh, we get the NBC show, The Main Event, which airs on February 1st. Um, and Jack Tunney, 
on the take, Jack Tunney, uh, announces Slaughter versus Hogan as the main event of WrestleMania. Uh, other contenders, he claims, were the Ultimate Warrior, Randy Savage, who was promised the match, never got it, as you said, and Jim Duggan. Who did challenge Slaughter on the main event show, and it went to a DQ. Finish. Couldn't even beat Jim Duggan. Yeah, Jim, yeah, that, that didn't help Slaughter at all. Um, you know, it's obviously kind of a secondary issue to why the uh, angle didn't work. But, yeah, they, they were not putting Slaughter over particularly strong, um, in the ring at least, in the build. Uh, but, yeah, Jim Duggan as a world title contender at WrestleMania is very bad. Uh, the show itself does a 6.7 rating and an 11 share, good for 74th place in the primetime ratings for the week. Ouch. Yeah, it was the worst showing by far for any WF program ever on NBC. And keep in mind, folks, most of those programs aired on NBC were in the 11.30 p.m. Eastern time slot for Saturday Night Live. This one was on at 8 p.m. Eastern. So it's a on a Friday. On a Friday, Friday, yeah. Yeah, on a Friday, not a Saturday. But, you know, for it to be the worst rating ever, that's a reflection of the times. And a reflection of the angle, nothing else. Because if you're doing a worse angle Friday at 8 than you are Saturday at 1130, um, that tells you something. I mean, remember, I mean, the numbers, you know, you could argue the numbers for 89 and 90 in the Friday 8 p.m. slot were kind of disappointing. We talked about yeah. the rating. Um, for, it was actually better in 90 than it was in 89, which shocked me. We, we yeah. talked about that in part one of our 90 series. But, you know, 88 is obviously the all-time television, best television audience they ever got. And that will never be broken. But, I mean, so what? We're down, like, less than half the less than half the people that watched 88 Oof. in the Friday 8 p.m. slot watched this. Less Jesus. That's bad, man. The November special uh, after Survivor Series, which wasn't considered a success by any means, did an 8.6 for comparison to this one, which did a 6.7. And that was without Hulk Hogan, the wrestler with by far the most mainstream appeal and ratings power in the business. Hulk was all over this show, this uh, this episode of the main events. Uh, and according to Variety magazine, NBC knew about Titan's plan to burn the flag on this primetime special and did not allow it to happen. You know, one of the worst things about you know WWE becoming a publicly traded company is how we can no longer refer to it as Titan. Yeah, I, I like that. that. <laughs> I, like, I, I love it when Dave would just call it Titan all the time during these yeah. times. It was, just, it was good. Um, we talked about the largely phoned-in creative effort of the 1990 main event Mm -hmm. when we did the 90s series. Uh, The booking of this show, I thought, was even more pedestrian. Yeah, it didn't help. I mean, like a slaughtered Jim Duggan title match? I mean, I guess the big hook was, well, we're going to announce the WrestleMania main event. But you knew who it was going to be. Everyone knew it was going to be Hogan. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, just a real phoned-in effort on the creative side of things. It's a tasteless angle turning people off. And certainly, this is not good, uh, the rating, for the WWF-NBC relationship, which is now entering its seventh year, and it wouldn't be long until that was over. I think pretty clear, Liam, the rating here and the venue change for Mania, clear signs the slaughter angle isn't working. The rumble buy rate was a mirage. Uh, The Hogan house show numbers, a mirage. Uh, But here's the problem. There's no turning back after you've already put the belt on Slaughter, and all of a sudden it ain't looking so good for the patriotic orgy. <laughs> 100,000 disappointed people. Yeah, I mean, it just you, that's the thing. You committed to it. You can't go back. It's not like now where you can do a title change back to Warrior. You can't do mm. you, That is something they would could not do. 
you know, having all those title changes, that's just not realistic to expect. Um, this Hulk Hogan promo on the main event, by the way, you talked about him being all over the show. Holy oh, boy. God in heaven. He was lean and heavy on the war stuff. Talking about gallons of oil and Scud missiles being pointed at the little Hulkamaniacs. Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. Scud missiles pointed, you know, and like the Hulksters just not under, you know, you know, all my Hulkamaniacs, you know, like understanding the First Amendment, but they don't get why it protects the guy like Sergeant Slaughter. That's such mid stuff. Oh, it's great, isn't it? You can just yeah. the whole thing. Like you can, it's so great. I mean, this is a whole, it's an awful angle, but you can see this through the lens of Vince. This says a lot about Vince. Yes, absolutely. This and this is one of the first times I think you, again you could say that where yeah. it's just like Vince's personality coming out in this angle and it just you know not working. Uh, Hogan also leads the Pledge of Allegiance, which you know God bless you Pledge of Allegiance lovers, but that's just always so sad and desperate when yeah. when somebody's like. I'd like everybody to stand up and help me recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Like, yeah. I mean, you want to get an eye roll for me. <laughs> Worked so well for Volkov. Oh, yes, yes, yes. My goal, by the way, on this podcast is to get you to laugh as hard as you did uh, during Nikolai Volkov's sad <laughs> attempt at shadow boxing, close bullshit, <laughs> break up. That's all I want to do. Volkov would have been shit-canned by this point, hadn't he, I think? He's definitely off TV. I mean, yeah, they bring him back for the 92 Rumble. Yeah, but he's not, he's not really he, around. Where he gets a shit. chorus of boos. A chorus of boos. <laughs> and Gorilla. It's not a good time over there for those Lithuanians. Heenan, too bad. <laughs> Bobby Heenan. He's just tremendous. I just feel so. I, I felt like legitimately horrible for Nikolai in the '92 Rumble because he runs out. He's got this big grin on his face. He's so and he's happy run, to be there. Yeah, and he's running so slow, trying to get high fives from the fans, and no one high fives him. Like the entire front. Row. <laughs> there we go, Nikolai Volkov. <laughs> getting Liam O'Rourke to laugh very hard. Oh God! And just again, that's, and Gorilla when he gets thrown out, and Gorilla's like, "Well, he didn't last very long, did he?" No, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Oh, man. So, for the rest of the build, after the main event, Sergeant Slaughter burns a flag, in quotes. It's actually just a pole with a Hulk Hogan t-shirt on it. Um, they don't get the ability to burn the flag. Uh, Hogan does a promo on TV pledging to get on the front line in Kuwait with the WWF title around his waist. A bold <laughs> proclamation from Terry. I mean, yeah, it's a real Braveheart shit right there, man. <laughs> A Monday night's promo. They will never take my freedom! <laughs> or my title. Yeah. On Monday night's primetime wrestling, Hulk Hogan said that when he pins Sergeant Slaughter at WrestleMania, that will be the exact moment Iraq will surrender in the war because they'll realize it's fruitless to continue at that point. Yes, I just imagine Saddam Hussein having ordered WrestleMania 7 on pay per view sitting there <laughs> on the edge of his seat. Slaughter eats the pinfall, him turning to his advisor and saying, fuck it, it's over. <laughs> I quit. Throw in the towel. Uh, unfortunately for Hulk, the Gulf War actually ends on February 28th. And with that, the negative press does die down some. Uh, yeah. By the way, Primetime like, undergoes a format change during this period, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, like, I forget what they did. Is this when they went to, like, a live audience or they something? Did, or yeah, they, so what happens is, ratings have been sinking for a while with the Gorilla Bobby at the desk format, which is a shame, because I like that format. But That's the, the best primetime format they ever had. I think, yeah, I think that's, that stuff's awesome. And Heenan and Gorilla getting to rough of each other is, is tremendous. Unfortunately, ratings have gone down. They are looking, and again, that's 
partly to do with how cold the product is, more than the, 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 uh, the format of the show, they decide to shake it up. And this is where we get Vince and Heenan in front of a live studio audience, you know, having guests on to do stuff, throwing some matches here and there. I suppose it's got an energy that I can see Vince liking, but the show just is far less entertaining. Yeah, I mean, to me, when I watch those old prime times, and I'm sure you're the same way, I actually watch them for the Gorilla Bobby banter. And yeah. you know, sometimes we'll fast forward to the matches. I mean, that was part of the issue, I guess, is like a lot of the matches this show were like terrible mm-hmm. during this period. Um, you know, it was a recap show. It was just, it was a format much different than anything we see on WF television today. Um, so, you know, that, that is what it is. I just wanted to mention that the format changed because I'm watching it. Um, you know, the angles and stuff, and a lot of it was presented on primetime. They keep hyping this change, um, but, I, but I never, they actually never, uh, the, the, all the footage I got to see, uh, none of it was, act, they never showed the new primetime format on any of the, guy, the, the, the videos I saw. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's unfortunate, because this is where you have, like, the, the shift from, again, the great actual natural comedy with Gorilla and Bobby to the, the Vince comedy of Bobby Heenan rolling around in a tub full of grapes while Andre the Giant laughs at him. Yes, and yet, you know, Vince with his tremendous fashion sense oh, as well, those workout clothes, you know. That's a highlight. That's a highlight of the year. Yeah, yeah, just try, get, getting us ready for, you know, uh, WWF, uh, WBF body stars. Oh, which is coming. More on yeah. that later. Uh, Sergeant Slaughter buries Hulk Hogan under the Iraqi flag after a short, shitty match with Hulk Hogan beating General Adnan. Um, Hogan's no, that was go-home. on the weekend television, correct? The Hogan yes. Adnan match? Okay, yeah, what a doozy that was yeah hogan's go home promo is pretty special saying that uh bush has declared victory and the troops coming home was great but the war isn't over he dedicates his match at mania 7 to all the dead troops in the persian gulf so again what we've been saying don't tell me that like the war was this inconvenient reality here they are the war has ended we're now going into march wrestlemania's in march and they're trying to say, oh, the war's not over, folks. You know, I'm yeah. still fighting for you, even though the war is very clearly over. Yeah. So, I mean, exploiting the war was always the game plan. Don't let any other podcast tell you otherwise. No, that's uh, I think that's a pretty pretty damning piece of evidence. Odd bit of commentary, though. And this actually, happened a couple of times here. Gorilla and Bobby, during the, uh, the Hogan-Adnan match, and this has happened before, talking about the WrestleMania 7 main event, saying that Hulk Hogan is a massive favorite to win. Well, you know, they always talk about betting, but yeah. Um, this is <laughs> not the main reason that the feud was a failure, but the formality of Hogan regaining the title certainly did not help. No. And, you know, Slaughter teasing in the, like, final weeks that he would de- get DQ'd on purpose to stay champ is, like, a really desperate way to address things. That's when you know you've got a weak champion if you've got to go to that level. And they push it hard during the pay-per-view, too. Oh, Slaughter's rules. You know, he might get disqualified to hang on to the title. Yeah, that's weak. <laughs> so weak. Which would have been maybe the only worse way to punctuate this feud, by the way, if Slaughter <laughs> yeah. got DQ'd at WrestleMania. Oh, my God. Well, Slaughter apparently has been telling his friends here that he'll be turning babyface shortly. This is before WrestleMania, he says this. Yeah, and that did not happen until the fall, as he and Hogan inexplicably continued feuding until SummerSlam. Yeah, inexplicably being the key word, because they bleed this fucker bone dry. Yeah, I mean, again, war's over. I mean, it's almost like, you know, it's funny, again, I keep going back to that point, that, oh, you know, it's not our fault about the war, whatever. It's almost like they wanted the war to go on longer. Yeah, well, of Based course. On this, I, mean, I mean, it is like just, I mean, 
That, that we'll get into that in part two. That's not for today about you know this Hogan slaughter mm-hmm. thing continuing. But that that to me is a real head scratcher. Uh, and, and, and it should be noted, by the way, that while the, all the negative press is taking place for Sergeant Hogan, it's not actually the only controversy going on in the company at the time. Uh, and something that you'd kind of hinted at in the 1990 series, Carl, at the end of January, uh, while you're in Savage doing cage matches uh, around the horn, and there's a bit of controversy going on with Sherry because they are doing the spot where Sherry will climb the cage and Warrior will rip her clothes off. And there's a lot of parents with kids in the crowd who were very upset, apparently. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Can you read the Meltzer quote first? <laughs> uh, one week after the Rumble, Savage actually breaks his thumb, it should be noted, and he's out of action until WrestleMania. So with Savage out, uh, all the matches that were originally Savage Warrior cage matches on top, which was drawn real well after the Royal Rumble, now move to Warrior versus Slaughter. Uh, Sherry is still doing the same routine on the house shows, however, and Meltzer says, by and large, it seems that the guys loved it. Women hated it, and mothers who had come with their children were dragging their kids out of the building as it was taking place and were furious. Because wrestling draws 70% men, so much more liked it than didn't. I won't call it sexist, however, says Dave, because they had Kurt Hennig earlier in the show get stripped and take bumps in his underwear as well. What an incredible quote that is. <laughs> I love that. I was laughing so hard about that uh, quote with uh, Mr. Perfect. Okay, so having lived through the Attitude Era, uh, this... I guess would seem pretty tame by today's standards, but you did not see stuff like that at all in the WWE. If you talk about the des- the desperate sense uh, from within the promotion, you know, like, yeah, a female getting stripped down to her bra just didn't happen. The only other example I thought of again involved Sherry, but it was two years later with Luna. They had this brawl on Raw. Yep, yep. So, I mean, th- this was just not something that happened. I mean, it wasn't on TV. It was at the house shows, but again, it's more controversy, more bad press at a time. They don't need it. Yeah. Again, as we said, they've got so many more eyes now watching them and something like this that probably would have flown under the radar, honestly, does get a bit of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as we, as we move to this, now, Warrior, of course, cutting a promo on Randy Savage, the stipulations for WrestleMania, the career-ending match is, is set up. And as I'm watching these promos back, Warrior is on Savage. He's not yelling. And it's so much better than the stuff he did against Hogan the year before. I can't even believe how much better this was. When I watched it back, Warrior's promos are real good for this uh, for this big match with Savage, and it just it plays so much better. Okay, a couple things. One, I loved the announcements of the career-ending match with Mean Gene doing this breaking news segment at the end of uh, Superstars. Yeah. Where he's like in the, uh, you know, he's in his like usual spot, you know, in front of all the TVs, the event center, whatever you want to call it. And he's saying he heard, quote, unconfirmed reports of each man challenging each other to a career any match. I think that's a great way to tease the announcement of a match. Yeah. You know, I mean, now they just kind of just like put it, they just, you know, report it on, tw- on Twitter. But yeah. I thought it was really cool. Like, Gene's like, you know, tune in next week. I'm hearing these reports. It just, you know, gave it maybe kind of a, a sense of realism. And on that note, with, with realism, you talk about these promos being better. You're absolutely correct. And it boils down to the fact that people understood this storyline. There's a tangible component to it with Warrior, you know, having lost the title because of Savage. That's yeah. something people can buy into. And then the careers being online, people can buy into that. Th- those Warrior Hogan promos, and we beat that to a dead horse uh, in the 1990s series. It wasn't, yeah, it was like these two big stars clashing, but the conflict just 
it wasn't like the story just wasn't there. They they kept talking about, you know, like just like astronomy bullshit. And no one knows, <laughs> like, you know, and people are like, what the hell are you talking about? This it's wrestling. It's very easy to understand. And that's why it worked better. Yeah, it's 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 fundamental stuff that they do real well. Warrior, kind of hilariously, given the 1990 had coming off like the far cooler babyface uh, in this situation than Hulk Hogan. Yeah, and again, part two of this series, we're going to look at that in more detail. It's it's very interesting when you compare it vis-a-vis 1990. You know, how Warrior and Hogan are compared to, you know, post-WrestleMania 6. It's it's crazy. Contract signing for the career-ending match takes place on television, interrupted by The Undertaker, who comes out and just kind of stands there. Uh, the explanation is given in the go-home promos that The Undertaker will be there to spread the ashes on the Warriors' career after Savage beats him. Obviously, a sign of things to come. Kind of a curious thing to do. It is, but, you know, it's good foreshadowing to the Warrior Taker program. Yeah. This is a time period where you had your feuds laid out. They were not, you did not have eight people sitting around a conference table, you know, say, well, who are we going to feud Warrior with? And, you know, they send somebody out there and then, you know, three weeks later, it's like, why'd you do that? Well, mm. this just in, the Undertaker feuds with the Ultimate Warrior after WrestleMania. So it was a cool way to kind of interject um, him and, and, and foreshadow that feud. We're going to put a pin in our conversation here. Uh, the second half of our talk covering January to March of 1991 will be posted next week uh, where Kyle and I will talk all about WrestleMania 7 as well as look at the people that entered the WWF during this period of time, all the undercard stories of the first three months and discuss the steps that Vince was making uh, with the World Bodybuilding Federation and everything that was going on with steroids during this time. So that's all coming up for you next week, the second half of our talk covering January to March of 1991. For Kyle I am Liam O'Rourke, and we are out of here. Talk to you again soon. Bye.